Should I recite some Dylan lyrics to get us going? Yes. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. As always, I'm your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Programs Manager for the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue. And in studio today, the luxurious Grindstone studio today, I have two guests, actually. First, let me say that we have a guest running the boards today. Mr. Tommy Morley is in the house taking care of the production for us. Much appreciated, Tommy. Um, we had a mic cord show, short out earlier, so he doesn't have a mic. But if he did, um, he would introduce himself and say hello, and you would hear that you would hear that upstate accent that that perfectly was it Troy that perfectly yeah, yeah that perfectly Troy New York accent. Um, and also with me uh, in the studio today is Dr. Daniel Kelly, an associate professor of philosophy here at the at Purdue University. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. You are a busy person um, and are often not around. One of the many things I want to talk about was uh, your experience last year. You were doing something pretty cool last year, which we will circle back around to when we talk a little bit about your career. Good, good. Um, but first things first, we always ask people or guests on the grindstone how it is they came to study philosophy. So Dr. Dan Kelly, do you have a particular story, whether it's uh, a class you were taking, a moment in your life, a book you were reading, whatever it may be, is there a particular story um, that, or a moment in your life that sort of inspired you to study philosophy, um, even at the, you know, say the undergraduate level, let alone to become a professional philosopher? I, I mean, there's sort of two pivotal moments, I guess. Well, one one pivotal moment and then one good story. So the, um, the pivotal moment was just uh, my high school didn't really offer any classes in philosophy, but I was always sort of interested in it, and I was always kind of an avid reader of you know novels and and other things. Uh, and so when I got to college, I, you know, I went down the year before or the summer before my freshman year started, and all the philosophy courses, all the intro courses were full. Um, but I I just ended up rubbing shoulders with one of the deans at the orientation thing. And I told him I was really interested in philosophy, but I didn't get any courses. And he went and pulled a string for me. And uh, I got into an intro class. Nice. And uh, from there on out, I was uh, um, I got hooked and picked up a philosophy major. I was also in a double major in English literature. Um, so not only did I get into uh, philosophy that way, but I, I learned a little something important about how the world works. You know the right people, and good things will happen for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, maybe, and, maybe the most important lesson. It may, maybe yeah. the single most important uh, <laughs> lesson. Um, yeah, and then after I graduated from uh, from undergrad, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I was sort of you know um, drifted around for a little bit. And then I applied to graduate school in philosophy, and I was talking to someone, one of my friend's older brothers, and uh, I was about to move out to Boston to start grad school at Tufts. And uh, he asked me what, what I was doing. I was like, oh, I'm going to go you know, study philosophy, maybe try and get a PhD in it and see, see what the career options there are. And he, you know, he sort of said, oh, that sounds really cool, but I, just, I, I, think, I think I would just have to think too much. And that, you know, I, I, this was one of those few times this was not a prefab like response, but it was just the perfect one. And I just, you know, I said, I, I already think too much. <laughs> um, I'm hoping this will just help me organize it a little bit better. So yeah. like the impulse to philosophy was just this like over analysis and like yeah, just yeah. living inside my own head. And, you know, I, I was... Uh, I wanted some help with it, and uh, philosophy is, if, if nothing else, it's definitely provided a lot of, a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, you're saying to this person, like, have you ever spent a day with me? Like, I, I'm pretty sure the thinking too much has already yeah, been we, accomplished. We got that one covered, yeah. <laughs> I li- yeah. I like that idea, though, that it's, it's less about, like, the quantity of thinking I do or, like, the duration of, like, time during the day I spend thinking. This is more about helping myself learn how to structure it. I've never thought about that, but I really like the way you put that mm-hmm. because I think it was a similar thing for me when I 
decided to major in philosophy, I was like, well, I'm already freaking out all the time about yeah. everything. Yeah. So, like, That's I might totally as right. well just major in, I mean, I know it sounds corny, but, like, major in <laughs> thinking because I'm already overthinking. Um, but I never thought about, and maybe this just means I was a much worse student than you were, but I never thought about how effective it might have been for or- for organizing my thoughts, which I think are still, as listeners, no doubt, will know, <laughs> ten- tend to just, you know by the by the beat of their own drummer these things yeah, um yeah. so where were you at when you're doing your undergrad if you don't mind my asking uh I, I went to illinois wesleyan university which is a small liberal arts college in uh, bloomington illinois so I, I grew up on the the fringes of chicago land right where right where the suburbs sort of shade into central illinois so nice um yeah i had a, a foot both in the rural and kind of the suburban um midwestern lifestyle um and then ended up in central illinois going to, going to college there how did you like the uh small liberal arts college experience the reason i say is because you know we're at purdue which is not the a small liberal arts other college. side of yeah. the spectrum yeah. yeah that's exactly right um i i mean i i liked it it, it, it was i don't think i realized that it was going to be half the size of the high school that i went to so uh, wow yeah only wow. Was two thousand people and like i graduated in a class of you know, 750 people from high school there's four thousand <laughs> kids there okay um, but it was it was it was great um you got a lot of personal attention from your professors and everything um and uh, good facilities and I, I made like the standard lifelong friendships and all that stuff nice um it was a little bit like small town living that that everyone knew everyone else's business though and so by the time i got out of there i was quite ready to get out of there time to move on (laughs) it's funny though because i sometimes think um i sometimes think here at purdue it's the it's the opposite so i mean insofar as let me explain what i mean like the small town kind of feel Mm -hmm. but when i was an undergrad here my older sister went here and i think three of my cousins who we all grew up in indiana went here and I kid you not, I think I saw like my sister on campus twice yeah. in four years, you know, so it was like, it, you know, there were times when I wished it were a smaller community because I'm like, yeah. oh, my own family I don't run into, you know, and I remember one time I ran into my sister <laughs> on campus and we were both like, man, I really feel like I recognize you, you know, like, I, I think I know who you are, but we were both like going from one class to the next. It was like, you know, it was my sister. We're both yeah. just like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> see you later i'm busy oh right on well forty thousand students at purdue this yeah, year yeah. almost it's, it's yeah so the challenge is different it's to figure out ways to shrink the university and find sort of pockets of more intimate yeah, yeah. community in here yeah you're part of something Create bigger community. which is kind of great and if you need to you can you can wander through different social groups um but it, the challenges are very much different than they are at a small place yeah yeah so when you okay so you left with uh double major in English literature and philosophy and mm-hmm. you were going to Tufts to do your master's in philosophy. I, I took a year off and just traveled for a while. Sure, sure. Of, yeah, yeah. So, but what led you, I mean, where did that jump occur for you? When did you decide, okay, this is what I want to do, or at least I want to pursue philosophy to a, you know, another level or yeah. whatever. So, so the, the question for me was, wasn't if I was going to go back to grad school, it was for what, did I want to pursue English or did I want to pursue philosophy? And it was, I think it was always just there in the background because I did, I did well in undergrad, but I wasn't the most dedicated student as it were. I, I, I never felt like I was really, really tested or really invested a whole lot of myself in it. Um, and so I wanted to see what I, I wanted to take that next step and challenge myself and see what I could get out of it. And, you know, I, I got good feedback from all, on my professors and everything. So I, I ended up deciding that the world didn't need yet another Shakespeare scholar, um, as much as I loved, oh, man. as much as I loved the corpus. Uh, um, and I, there was just, there was interesting stuff happening in philosophy that I kind of wanted to be a part of. Um, and Dan Dennett was at, uh, Tufts and he had just written this book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which was kind of, a the, the worldview. If, if you, um, really commit to a scientific perspective. And if you really think that Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection is sort of telling us something key about human nature, um, he was sort of the, the main person chasing down the philosophical philosophical implications of that. Um, so that was super compelling for me. I was lucky to get in there. Nice. Had you read some of Dennett's work um, as an undergrad? I mean, were you familiar with his with his work? Is that part of what led you down that particular path or serendipity? Or <laughs> it's a just... little serendipity. Yeah, yeah. I, I read and wrote on uh, Quine, who was one of Willard Van Orman Quine, who was one of Dennett's students. And uh, uh, no, sorry, was, Dennett was a student of Quine's, yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of shared a similar outlook, but it wasn't quite as um, philosophy of mind oriented. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I applied and I. I got into Tufts and saw Dennett was there, and then I sort of read his stuff a little bit more 
you know, closely and carefully and got super excited about the possibility. Nice. And so then being there studying with Dennett, I don't know much about anything really, but I do know the name Dan Dennett. And I know that obviously he's a key figure in um, late 20th, I mean, also to this day, but, you know, sort of um, this uh, movement, I guess, in late 20th century um, philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you were there and you're studying with him, at what point did you sort of figure out what specific aspects of the field you really wanted to key in on? I mean, at what point, because it sounds like it was still a little exploratory when you got out to Tufts. At what point did you really start to um, feel comfortable with, okay, this is sort of what I want to do. And I should say, so when I think of you, I mean, just as, you know, colleague and someone who works down the hallway, I think of you as doing uh, philosophy of mind. Um, but I, you have, I mean, just speaking in the more like general field terms, I think of philosophy of mind, uh, some evolutionary psychology and folk psychology, um, you know, moral theory, morality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, not to necessarily get into the <clears throat> nuance of it, but just sort of the broad strokes right. or whatever kind right. of, um, yeah, top level of the CV sort of like, <laughs> here's what I do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when did that kind of start to um, take shape? When did that start to start to congeal for you where you got a, a sense of really like the kind of philosophy you wanted to do and pursue? It was, it was largely at Tufts. I mean, I, I went in knowing that I was interested in issues that come up in the philosophy of science and um, sort of this naturalistic perspective. And then I got there, I took, a number of classes with Stephen White is a professor there who's also an excellent philosophy of mind teacher. Uh, I took some classes with Dan Dennett and got interested in that. There's a, one of the most influential teachers I've ever had is a, um, a guy named George Smith at, at Tufts who teaches a year-long course, which the first half is what science looked like before Newton, and then the second half is what science looked like after Newton, like what, what exactly the achievement of Newton was. Hmm. Um, and how to understand sort of how the epistemic foundations of modern science were secured. And I just got interested in all those sorts of questions. So, so the interesting thing was sort of morality and ethics was not even on the radar screen when I was at Tufts. That happened when I moved. So I got a, I got a master's degree at Tufts, and then I moved to Rutgers for my Ph.D., um, and I, I worked with my dissertation advisors named Stephen Stitch, who's also a naturalistic philosopher of mind in the sort of mold of um, that, that Dan Dennett is as well. And at, I, w- I was just like, I got lucky enough to be there when there was all sorts of exciting new things happening. And one of one of the growth industries and in research at the time was this interdisciplinary field of moral psychology, where you had empirically oriented philosophers thinking a little bit more carefully and systematic, carefully and systematically about um, how humans actually make moral judgments and um, what the sort of nature of moral diversity might look like and what implications that has on metaethical theories and sort of normative ethical theories. Um, but also um, psychologists who are, who are getting more and more philosophically sophisticated and doing experiments which were informed by the kinds of debates that you see philosophers having over mm-hmm. the last couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, you know, I felt like a kid in a candy store and <laughs> yeah. um, it was perfect. So that's the, sort of my current research profile was really the, the basics were in place at Tufts were formed there, but then the more specific um, refining really happened at Rutgers. Nice. Two questions. Um, one, maybe more technical, but just for myself and the audience. Uh, and actually, well, I'll ask that question second, but I wanted to ask you to unpack the naturalism a, a little bit or the naturalistic approach. But secondly, just to, clar- to clarify something I said, I, I, does that seem right that um, sort of the 90s, there was this kind of movement, this interest in, um, yeah, I guess combining the, I mean, you were just saying now, because you were saying there was a lot going on, but that that seems about right, right? That it was kind of somewhere in the 90s where you're taking sort of empirical philosophy and psychology, and there started to be this marriage of it to just, you know, explore uh, philosophy of mind in a... Um, I don't want to say specifically like neurocognitive science, but that that there was um, maybe like a less uh, metaphysical approach or something to how the, the mind works or something like this. Does that sound yeah, fair yeah. enough? I mean, it seems to be that era kind of late. Right. So, so, so I'll, I'll take a step back and answer sort of both of those questions. Um, sure. In, in order. So, so the, the big frame is what you, the word you used was naturalism, which is the, the right way to think about it. And naturalism, it, I mean, it trace, it has a long history in philosophy, probably the, the sort of um, current 
patron saint of a naturalistic approach to, to philosophy is David Hume. Um, so he was very much um, sort of philosophy should be informed by our understanding of human nature and how the mind works. And, um, <clears throat> you know, he was famously skeptical about a lot of armchair sorts of conclusions that Descartes draws about the nature of the self or um, what causation is like, given very empiricist principles that drive the, the Hume, Hume's outlook. Um, but yeah, and then the, in, in the 20th century naturalism, the some of the main proponents there, probably the godfather of the 20th century is Willard Van Orman Quine. And that, but, but that's a, a response also, he, he responds to the logical empiricists, which were broadly naturalistic in their outlook too. And what that just means is it's just a fancy way of saying they want to do philosophy and sort of um, come up with theses which are continuous with the natural sciences um, and sort of defend views which are and explore the way different views um, on philosophical issues fit within a worldview um, that is being delivered to us by the cumulative progress of the sciences. So mm -hmm. if the science is the best sort of epistemic engine we have to, to generate knowledge about the natural world um, and its contents, um, probably also with a proviso like, and that's the only stuff there is, right? So, so there's the natural world, and it's a denial of supernatural entities. Um, but right, you know, right. science isn't going to be able to tell us what doesn't exist. But um, it's the best engine to tell us that this is what the natural world contains, and this is the machinery that, that, that um, by which it operates. Uh, and the naturalism and philosophy is just, I mean, the, the haters will call it scientism, like uh, un, unjustified worship of science. Mm, mm -hmm, um, but mm -hmm. the, the more measured way is just to say something like, well, if you're a naturalist, you pay attention in your philosophizing to, um, if you're doing philosophy of mind, you pay attention to what psychology and cognitive science are discovering about the way minds work. If you're interested in biology, you pay attention to what um, <clears throat> molecular or you know molecular biology and organic chemistry and evolutionary theory are telling us about what life is um, so that that's that's the sort of broad naturalistic perspective and quine was famous for a program a research program called um naturalized epistemology <clears throat> where okay. he was saying um our our best picture of of the generation and production of knowledge is going to come from the natural sciences um, and, and broad outlines. Um, and then this, this to, just to connect it to the second thing, this, oh, yes, sir. the specific question you asked was about what was happening in the 90s. And really it was the early, the early oddies that this, okay. this particular research program of um, wh where philosophers start gathering their own data and psychologists start um, writing really theoretical and philosophically informed papers, um, that was that was sort of a, a particular outgrowth out of a naturalistic philosophic worldview. Uh, but you can be a naturalist without running any experiments of your own. That's I mean that's basically what I am. I'm not an I'm not an experimentalist. I'm merely a parasite on those who run their own. <laughs> I'm a consumer of, yeah, yeah. Of, of the sciences, but I'm not a contributor to the sciences. So in that sense, then the naturalist view is just that. We can we can interact uh, from a philosophical standpoint. We can interact with the sciences and what they tell us about the world, um, and as we experience it, uh, whether that is cognitively or phenomenologically or otherwise, regardless of the sort of those <laughs> different shades, maybe. But just there's just a sense that um, if we want to explore the natural world broadly speaking then we should rely on the expertise of scientists and it doesn't as you say it doesn't become a scientism where you're sort of holding science above all else it mm -hmm. just means that we maybe should um be comfortable using those using that research to inform what we're doing so we aren't necessarily left with a completely detached theorizing about how our mind interacts with the world if say just specifically we're concerned with the mind or something like that, that there's research out there that can tell us um, how, how our mind interacts with the world. But that doesn't mean that it's uh, that there isn't room for a philosopher then to ask questions about that or to then use that to inform, you know, his or her own. Um, yeah. Sort of theorizing. Yeah. Does that, is that right? I mean, I'm just trying to make a very broad stroke. Sorry. Yeah, that, I think you did a much better job of explaining <laughs> it, but just so I understand that that sort of first base, like first level naturalism is just, I mean, it, it's even if like, if, if what your philosophic question is, is something like what's the nature of time mm -hmm. or what's the nature of space? I mean, sort of big grand yeah, yeah. metaphilosophical yeah. questions. Uh, 
that if you're a naturalist, then what you're going to do is not not just sit in your armchair and sort of reflect on your concept of time. I see. Um, you're not going to you're not just going to like try and derive some a priori constraints from the nature of your experience about time. You're going to go see what our what our best physical theories of the world tell us about what time is and how, how right time on. gets measured and how it interacts with other variables like space or how it interacts with energy and stuff like that. Um, and it's it's not that you can just read off philosophical answer. It's, it's not that you should just ask like the authority of scientists because a lot of times scientists um, <clears throat> uh, don't ask the same sorts of questions that philosophers are interested in. They're you know they're they're sort of setting up experiments and they're gathering data and they're running stats. Um, and so what what a good naturalist will typically do is look look at the theory itself and try and answer whatever questions they have. So this again using whatever concepts they're bringing to bear on it. Um, I mean a real. A really good heuristic that I like to think about this is Wilfred Sellers makes this distinction between the manifest image and the the scientific image. So these two sort of pictures of the way the world is and two sort of pictures the way um, humanity sort of fits in the world at large. Mm -hmm. And one of them is sort of the manifest image is just the one that we use to get through the day, right? It's just sort of our folk psychological apparatus and our understanding of ourselves as people. And, um, you know, the desk is something which is solid and you can't walk through and it has all these different properties. But the scientific image is very different. The scientific image of that that desk is that it's mostly empty space, and it's actually a whole bunch right, of little right. things bouncing off each other. It's just <laughs> extremely different, right? They're two different sort of ways of conceptualizing or ways of um, picturing the same thing. And you can, you know, it happens with minds. So there's folk psychological theories, and then there's also sort of neuroscientific theories, and they're two different ways of studying and conceptualizing the same part of the world. But they're going to give you very different pictures of what that thing is and they're useful for different things as well um <clears throat> so i mean i think of a lot of my research as trying to manage the 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 interplay between the scientific image and the manifest image particularly okay, interesting. Of, of morality and of human minds mm, right? mm -hmm. so science is delivering one picture um you know we sort of start with this commonsensical picture on the other hand and how how should those two mesh or when when is it, some of the most interesting questions are when are they incompatible with each other and when they're incompatible with each other which one should give way to the other Hmm. Interesting. So I want to make my way there eventually and kind of come up, you know, to, to what you're doing currently um, in terms of the this is more just a, like out of my own curiosity. I'm always interested, like how these things arise. So what do you think was going on in the, the early aughts that sort of gave rise to this? I'm always, you know, whenever I see these sort of like certain movements pop up here and there, I'm always curious about the intellectual history. And but also just, you know, I mean, with with professional research is also like, well, a grant was developed that, I mean, there's like so many things that come into it. I just, there's always a sociological explanation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Or socioeconomic, you know, and I just wondered if, um, yeah, do you have any sense for why the, or the early aughts were sort of when that kind of started to really percolate? Yeah, there was, uh, <clears throat> I, I mean, on the one hand, it was that psychologists started, asking questions about more. There started to be enough science for philosophers to sort of productively engage with in various ways. Um, some of it was definitely sociological. So there was a paper written by three um, three of the most prominent ethicists called something like Findicycle Ethics, like end of the end of the millennia ethics. And at the very, it sort of gave an overview of what had been happening for the last couple of decades. And then at the end of it, there was this sort of clarion call um, for, for moral psychologists, philosophers who are interested in the psychology of morality, um, to stop just making up their facts from the armchair, but to actually go out and, and pay attention to the empirical science. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, you had that, that call from sort of prominent dyed-in-the-wool philosophers and ethicists and meta-ethicists. And on the other hand, you did have things happening. There was a, there was a seminar at uh, Princeton called Ethics 2000, um, which had, had nice. prominent psychologists and a couple of you know, um, extremely smart and prestigious and well-resourced philosophers in the room. And then um, part of what grew out of that was this uh, this moral psychology research group, which I was, again, lucky enough to, to get on board with when I was a grad grad student um, with. And they just brought together everyone who had sort of a, a nascent interest in this sort of stuff. And th there was a there was an explicit like, let's let's form a new field. Um here and that and you were there man uh, yeah um again luck is what percentage of life 80 percent of life is showing up but luck is probably 90 percent of it going well <laughs> um 
<laughs> yeah. So, so that, that was, that was great. And then, I mean, finally two, two more factors in there were, um, <clears throat> fMRI machines became a thing. So there were these technological advances. Mm-hmm. So while, while I was at Rutgers in grad school, um, Josh Green, who's now at Harvard, uh, switched from doing a PhD in philosophy to doing a PhD in psychology and neuroscience. And I think he rightfully gets credit for being the first person ever to stick someone in an fMRI machine and give them a moral dilemma. So he gave people the trolley, the trolley problem mm-hmm. and then like saw what part of their brain lit up. Um, so, so the technological advances were another element of this like coalescing of, of and, and the forming of a new field. Yeah. yeah so as ever, it's a very complex yeah, yeah, complex yeah. coming together of, of various things. But certainly it sounds like um, just the people were a big part of it. People that were interested in these questions and, right. you know, yeah, just getting together and, yeah, forming so, I mean, a group and pursuing was, that research agenda. Sorry. There were these historical structural currents which were coming together. But then there was also there was also people who knew what to do with them when they yeah. were sort of coalescing and, and, like, directed it. So this is John Doris and Steve Stitch and Gil Harmon and um, – John Darley um, was another one. And then, yeah, some of the grad students who were along for the ride were Josh Green and Josh Nob was doing experimental philosophy for the first time there. And, you know, it was a brave new world. <laughs> <laughs> and so at this time, you're working on your dissertation. Yeah. Um, what was the, uh, I always ask, what was the title of the dissertation? And before you, uh, before you answer that question, how many colons are in the title? Uh, zero colons. Really? I had the, the title of the dissertation was... I had seven was, colons. Mine was very boring. It was The Philosophy seven. and Psychology of Disgust. Nice. No, that's not boring at all. That sounds incredibly interesting. Also, no, no, for the, the record, the, I didn't have seven colons in my dissertation <laughs> title. I was hoping somebody Merely was four. Yeah. <laughs> Three of them right next to each other. It was a visual piece. It was sort of an experimental thing. Sort of an E. Cummings thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've also started my own field of research, but that hasn't taken off. No. Um, the uh, Okay, so sorry, it was, say that again, the title of the dissertation. So the dissertation was the philosophy and psychology of disgust. And then a and I'm assuming of the dissertation I was gonna became get the, there. the book I published a couple years later, which had a much better title. It was called Yuck. Um, the nature and moral significance of disgust. Yeah. So, okay. So the PhD or the dissertation leads to this. Uh, this was MIT Press and this was 2009? 2011. Sorry, 2011. Yeah. So again, the title is Yuck, the Nature and Moral Significance of Disgust. That is MIT Press 2011, um, which also has a great picture of great cover art, um, which is you if i understand this correctly <laughs> right now yeah my my yeah. editor picked that out for me oh, that's awesome uh, and I, d- I got to sign off on it but he, he made it I, d- I had another option but he definitely had the better of the two okay. so. <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you what the other option was um but so talk to me about so what interested you in the morality of disgust mm-hmm. broadly speaking um and well i guess the first question first what interested you in this yeah All right, so I mean, there, there's this trope that people tend to study things that they that they don't understand really well. Um, so there's a little bit of that mixed in here that I've just never understood why someone would think that their their sort of sense of repulsion was any reliable guide to moral judgment. Like just because something grosses you out, um, people think that that's a good reason to think that it's it's morally wrong and you shouldn't do it or it's unnatural or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've just never understood that sort of inference. Um, that being said, the, this was also, you know, like I said, the, the time at this point was there, there was, you know, it was the heady days of youth and there was all this stuff going on and an appetite for empirical moral psychology or empirically informed sort of philosophizing about this stuff. And there was all these really sort of suggestive and interesting uh, studies being done on the way disgust shapes more, a certain class of moral judgments. Um, but n- none of it, just the, the fragments of theory or the ideas that were out there were just incoherent. They were like none of, they didn't really fit together well. No one had told like a, a conceptually clean story about what was happening here. Um, so there was, you know, I just saw this opportunity. Um, I said, all this stuff is super, super cool. And it just seems so interesting. And, and again, I'm puzzled by the way people respond to their own disgust responses. Um, so you know, I talked to my advisor and he turned me loose on it. And, um, so yeah, what I did was went out there and it's, it's an extremely interdisciplinary book. Um, I, my research portfolio is itself extremely interdisciplinary as well. Um, so this is sort of, uh, <clears throat> emblematic of, of that larger trend. Um, but yeah, I got to read stuff in anthropology and I got to read stuff in 
in uh, you know developmental psychology, and I got to read stuff about people who are putting subjects in in brain scanners and seeing what happened when they showed them pictures of dog crap and you know all this stuff. And then I got to read philosophers talking about like what the nature of moral judgment is and if it's if mm. it's sort of uh, you know intrinsically emotional um, or if there's something. Uh, something rational about it, such that disgust is sort of distorting our moral judgments. Um, so there hmm. was just there was just so many interest. There was a cluster of interesting questions, and so I got to I got to get my like my theorizing itch scratched because I got to sort of try and tell a coherent, descriptive, and explanatory story about what this emotion is, why we evolved to have it, whether or not it's a piece of human nature, which is sort of unique, um, which I think it is. I think you don't find disgust in dogs or other primates or anything, um, but you find sort of components of it. So it, it, it was this, this sort of <clears throat> venue into or, or a route into saying something about the nature of uh, human psychology as distinct from other animals so what is what is sort of unique about us in the in the natural world um and then it again it had these sort of interesting moral implications that there's some cultures were discussed as an extremely prominent and important uh, moral emotion there's some mm. cultures that mm. try and do their best to like sideline it and minimize the role that it has so i got to think about cultural diversity and variation and and sort of normative and moral outlooks it just it seemed like it had a little bit of everything now you know the downside was i, I for a while anyway and probably still i, I became known as the disgust guy so <laughs> which is a yeah. bit of a dubious distinction but um at least you, know. you weren't referred to as the disgusting guy i mean it yeah, could have but it's a slippery slope part of speech. You know? <laughs> it could have been yeah yeah um so let me ask you this. So uh, it seems to be the case that for many people, there's an intuitive reaction to things that discuss them that they just automatically equate that with this being bad, with something being morally wrong. Well, so those are two different. Being bad and being morally wrong are, are importantly distinct, right? Sure, so it's sure. bad if I step in a pile of dog crap, right? That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. bad. Or it's, or it's disgusting if I have to sit on the bus next to someone who's like sneezing and sweating. And like, that's disgusting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not clear. You know, maybe I'm at risk of catching something and that would be bad also so you know disgust is very sensitive to the indicators of infectious diseases and it sort of tracks contagion possibilities hmm. um, and that's part of the evolutionary story of why we have it it's it's this it's this part of our immune system which isn't you know like white blood cells fighting off you know small microbes that are already in our blood it's sort of it's a preventative measure like stay away from things which might infect you hmm. um which and so you can you can sort of tell a story and, and rationalize a lot of why disgust has the behavioral profile that it does. Um, now, whether or not things which are disgusting are also and if and when they're they're morally wrong is a separate question. Okay. Right? So the moral valence of something is is what I was part of what I was trying to do in the book was cleanly separate those out and think about each each one on its own terms. Interesting. So. Um in your research, though, do you find that that often is an equation that so let's say I'm sitting on the bus next to no, let me let me let me speak. Let me go closer to home. So one thing that I find disgusting is the green and yellow color ensemble of the Green Bay Packers. I cannot stand to look at it. I don't know why they chose those colors. Now, full disclosure season ticket holder of the Chicago Bears football franchise. Maybe that has something to do with it, but I don't think it does. <clears throat> um, so I find that disgusting. And when I see people wearing these green and yellow jerseys, I immediately say, that's a terrible person. <laughs> you Jets fan, Tommy? Yeah, yeah, okay. Tommy has a similar reaction. <laughs> the, uh, but so I... Um, but no, so... I, no, I'm kidding. But so let's say I'm sitting next to someone. Yeah. I do think that Green Bay Packers fans are morally corrupt, but that's for other reasons. Um, let, so let's say I'm sitting on the bus next to someone and they're like sweating and sneezing. So it's interesting that you say there's a there's partly a evolutionary thing here that says like, well, stay away from that person because they might have some sort of virus or microbe that yeah. we get. That, bad. Yeah, yeah, bad. Right. But yeah. then is there also a way... And thanks for clarifying. I see how I conflated those two things. Is there um, also, though, a way in which maybe I see this person on the bus and then uh, somehow I say, well, they're, that morally this person is wrong for being on the bus or like inserting right, themselves right. into the public context but or that, something like this? I think that's, like a, this. that's a separate issue. Okay, I think, right? okay. Um, yeah, so may, maybe 
the mere fact that they're sick isn't morally wrong, but the fact that they were sick together with the, um, their decision to get on the bus and ride it across town. Now we're entering somewhere where they're, okay. they're like their voluntary action is something which can be assessed morally. But, you know. Yeah. No, no, um, no, no. Thanks. That's really helpful. So yeah, th- there it's more contextual that maybe we can say that was a morally questionable decision right. to get out and then get on like, you know, close quarters public but transportation then, I mean, you know, but maybe, maybe they're going across town because like their kid just got in a car accident i mean yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, there's yeah, always more know. information you can do here right? yeah yeah but, but I, yeah, sorry but just so the jump that we don't want to make is just say well this person okay this is bad i need to avoid this person because it looks like i might get sick but the people don't necessarily then turn that page to and also that person is right. morally wrong i mean so, so think of think of examples like you know there's there's because i would think they would sorry to cut you off but i would think they would i mean i think this often happens in like political conversations Absolutely. like around like campaigns like suddenly people with a particular life situation are bad people you mm. know i mean now look that that's a rhetorical device but i just wonder if they're if yeah how much of that people are subject to like making these moral decisions about people based on these things that really shouldn't factor that that is not in fact a moral factor if that makes sense yeah i mean so so that's the that's the normative argument of the book is okay. that given what we know about how this particular little piece of our psychology works like why why it does what it does why it's sensitive to the things that it's sensitive to the sorts of judgments and uh, and emotional like motivations that it gives rise to and sort of um, gives rise to um, we we should not trust it at all when it comes to guiding our moral assessments right okay despite okay. despite how vivid the phenomenology is despite how you know some people are yes. just extremely squeamish about the possibility of stem cell research right right, right. like the thought just kind of grosses them out mm-hmm. um, you know you're gonna put a human ear and sink it to the back of a rat or something and that just like it just freaks people out um, now fair enough I mean there's something sort of like you know, uncanny valley about those sorts of cases. Um, there's something sort of, yeah, like, yeah, uh, you know, kind of freaky, yeah, uh, yeah. kind of creepy. But the, I think the the fact that these these sorts of things trigger this particular emotion shouldn't weigh one way or the other on whether or not, and when we're trying to figure out and think more deliberatively and think sort of institutionally about the pros and cons of that thing. Is it morally wrong or not? Right? I think that the fact that a lot of people are disgusted by it is just completely irrelevant, but it's not easy. So, so this is, it's a piece of, a, of human psychological nature and, if, and it's a piece of human moral nature that we can understand, um, but we shouldn't celebrate. We shouldn't sort of invest it or grant it a kind of authority that it doesn't deserve. And the reason we understand that it doesn't deserve it is because we now have this, because I've provided the next, you know, collectively, um, we've, we've sort of come to understand what this piece of our psychology is and where it comes from and, and how, it, how it operates. And that, that understanding should sort of drain it of any, any moral authority that we might be um, prone to give it and 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 this this cuts on both sides of you know traditional political divides right um if liberals are disgusted by some sort of behavior um it the disgust it by itself shouldn't militate shouldn't count in favor of them being right on their assessment of it same with conservatives same with libertarians you know i I don't care disgust is irrelevant for everyone is my view yeah yeah yeah. so um so unfortunately disgust may figure into our sort of moral picture of the world but as you're yeah right you, you're a, so your project in the books is a we really need to ca- like compartmentalize that that is should it, not right. be part of our and sorry I, um, but, but we're also going to probably mixing up my quite but i guess that was sort of yeah, my question was do you see this as being even just like in an anecdotal way that mm-hmm. people say that's disgusting therefore it's morally wrong and that's often a jump that people make do you think that is often a jump people make even though i realize you're <laughs> Um, yeah, your project here is to say, yeah, we need to compartmentalize that, and that should not be a jump we make. Right, the right. moral decision-making ma- process needs to be done strictly in the realm of morality that doesn't include these sort of, um, yeah, emotional responses to right. the things we see, hear, read, or whatever. So I, I think it's it's a piece of sort of folk folk morality that, that happens a lot. People are just like, I, you know, my gut tells me this is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, and then that's that's initial or at least prima facie reason to think that it's wrong and you need some reason to you know, defeat that. Yeah, but you yeah. can you can find, I mean, I argue with people in the book who are on record claiming that disgust is, has a certain sort of moral authority and to the that's extent it, yeah. that we're not 
um, that we're not following sort of the guidance of disgust, we're, we're falling into moral decay or something like that. There, there are people who make this argument explicitly. Um, I mean, one of the places it gets tripped up is, well, whose disgust counts, right? Like Bears fans I hear are disgusted by Packers fans, but Packers fans are disgusted by Bears fans also. So well, when you when you have, have you ever sort, been to Green Bay, when you it's have the sorts when you have the sorts of moral disagreement and uh, cultural variability, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, disgust is telling us the right and wrong thing to do. Well, yeah, whose? Yeah. You know, there's lots of disagreement yeah. there. So yeah, you yeah. need you certainly need more argumentation in those cases. Yeah, no, that's interesting, and thanks for uh, clarifying this because, as I'm sure listeners have picked up on already, um, yeah, this is not my field so i'm sorry if these questions for you are you know taking you steps back but no really it's it's interesting to me um and i guess what's interesting to me too is i'd never really thought about this but um in preparing for the interview i I did start to think about this a little bit myself like the times yeah i I guess that I'll, i'll be so quick to make an ethical judgment about someone or a moral judgment about someone just based maybe not even specifically something that I think is disgusting, but like, okay, whenever I see someone that I deem to be a bad driver, I have instantly condemned that person's soul. I'm just like, you are a terrible driver. You're driving. And even, and even if it's like, you're driving way too fast this morning on two thirty one. like, this is ridiculous. We're all going to work. There's no reason to rush to work. Though, let me say, I do love the Department of Philosophy and I love being employed here. Um, But there's no reason to rush to your job. Like, you can be four minutes late. It's okay. You'll get them tomorrow. But you're driving 78 miles an hour through construction on 231 South. And so my job is always, and really, you're an awful person. You know the old George George Carlin joke about this? (laughs) I wish I did, but I'm about to, I think we're about to hear it. Uh, when When you're driving... Anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot, but anyone who's driving faster than you is a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. That's, but I mean, maybe, maybe also too, I'm just confused. Maybe that's not a moral, but I, I always like in my mind, and maybe this means I am like a bad driver, but I just go to this person's driving unsafe. They're a bad person. They're unsafe for the community. And also this is probably the type of person that does the following five things that are all universally morally corrupt that, that nobody would disagree with. I just think you're the type of person who does this and everybody knows that's bad. Um, so I guess this is to take it, you know, just beyond disgust. But um, and again, I, I take your point being that we need to compartmentalize when we make these moral judgments. But I guess wh- what is it about humans and just, you know, just from an armchair perspective, like our mind that just that we that we're so quick to make these moral judgments with anything that doesn't align. Mm. And I don't even mean like politically with our world, but just like little things like that. Like if someone doesn't hold a door open for me the number of things that I have painted them with as to far as like how bad they are as a person, you know, but then I think, I think this is getting a little bit more revealing about you. Sorry. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yep. (laughs) Backing off. Um, No, no, that's fair enough. No, no, no. There's so so the, what you're, what you're pointing at is stripping away from some of the more lurid details. Um, No, there, there's this, there's a grindstone is man. It's just, we're just talking. There's a there's something right about the fact that there's a lot of just like quick intuitive judgments um, that are made by these processes, extremely incredibly complicated processes on sort of the lower tier of the human mind. Right. I mean, if if cognitive science has taught us any like single lesson about the way the mind works in the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's that the Cartesian picture of the mind being something which is completely transparent to itself um, is wildly misleading. So yeah. a, a lot of a lot of the information processing which happens, which guides behavior, which even gives us these sorts of moral impulses, which gives us the material about which we can deliberate when we're being more careful, um, those are all sort of subconscious. They're all being driven by this this adaptive machinery, um, which which is enormously complicated. But we what what we sort of see at the the highest level of deliberation and, and awareness um, is the tip of a tip of an iceberg, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when you know when someone doesn't hold the door for you, or they're driving too fast on the way home from school, or or someone does something which you think is um, think is sort of dodgy, um, that initial impulse is is you being sensitive in a way, being open to the the moral valence of the experience. Um, <clears throat> 
but uh, all those impulses aren't necessarily trustworthy. They're not, they're not the sorts of things that we always want to act on. They get it wrong in certain circumstances. Mm, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of what's been built into human nature is, is it's not all good, you know? Um, yeah. A lot of it is sort of there, there's a tribalishness to us. There's an in-group sort of favoritism and an out-group um, xenophobia and prejudice built into it. And we can um, – <clears throat> our impulses can lead us astray in a lot of, um, a lot of powerful ways. Um, but we're all familiar with this. We all have impulses in ourselves that we we would rather not act on. You know, I I I love whoppers, right? I, I just <laughs> I have this impulse where oh, I just nice. really like, but I wish I didn't, and I try not to act on that impulse. And it's one which I don't sort of vindicate or endorse. I don't want to embrace it or make it a centerpiece of my personality. And the grindstone does not endorse any particular product. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, <laughs> right. So, so if if what we if what we get at sort of that the Cartesian level of of conscious awareness and deliberation is a a bunch of like messy stuff that we we then need to sift through and figure out what's the good stuff that we should act on and what's the bad stuff that we shouldn't you know our gut produces a lot of things you know sometimes our gut points us in the right direction sometimes it doesn't um and and so the argument here is that well we, we now understand one piece of this sort of the, the the iceberg which is below the surface of conscious awareness and how it processes information and the sorts of judgments and impulses that it leads to um and we understand it well enough that that we should see that um we shouldn't just uncritically accept what it tells us to do or what it indicates about people or behaviors or, or things like that yeah so when where morality is concerned don't go with your gut necessarily it may end up being right but you, there's a whole process of take absolutely take take what your gut tells you under advisement right like don't let it just uncritically call the shots yeah yeah um it's it is it's and sometimes it's you know it's pointing in the right right direction um but sometimes maybe you just have indigestion or sometimes you know sometimes you're responding to like an argument you had with someone else earlier in the day and you're just cranky or something um yeah 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 yeah. Um, they um you ever listen to dumb people town so I got to give no. a shout out. Dumb People Town is one of my favorite podcasts. And when I can mention other podcasts, I try to mention them by name because, you know, I like to be a good citizen of the podverse. But on Dumb People Town, they take these stories from the news where people do dumb stuff. Nobody gets hurt. Animals don't get hurt or anything. But, like, people just do this dumb stuff and uh, they riff on it. It's the Sklar brothers, uh, <laughs> Randy and Jason Sklar, and Dan Van Kirk, who's from... Rochelle, Illinois. Is that anywhere near your neck of the woods? I uh, know, but I know someone who had okay. relatives there. Right. Okay. So they just riff on dumb stuff. And uh, Dan Van Kirk likes to often say, like, when there's an argument that is ultimately the argument that gets the police called to the bar, he'll say something like, you know, he'll be like, so let's say like, whatever, someone ordered a drink and got the wrong one or something like that. He'll be like, it wasn't that botched drink order. That that led to that, like this person is upset about something from work that day, exactly. or like as an example, he's obviously much funnier than me. But <laughs> the, like the point being is that there's something else behind this, like whatever that thing was right. that led to the you know ultimate you know incident or whatever that's landed them on dumb people. There was something so much further back in this person's day. <laughs> um, but I think that's interesting there, too. There's a great scene in uh, when Harry met Sally, sort of the original rom com. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, when oh. Billy Crystal finds out he's getting a divorce and he's telling his friend about Mr. Zero and it being, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave that as an exercise to the the listener to find on their own, but it's the exact same thought. I like that call, by the way, when Harry met Sally is the original Mm rom-com. Um, for me, it would be the wizard of Oz, but maybe that's a stretch. Um, no, (laughs) the, uh, (laughs) I, I, um, so to go back to what you were saying though, I mean, I do, I think that, well, first of all, uh, I'm learning a lot in this podcast. Um, two of the things that I've learned is that a, I'm a terrible person, and b, <laughs> they should never have let me teach. Why am I teaching ethics classes? Because clearly, I do not get this. Um, but no, I think it's important to say that, like, when it comes to moral judgment, that there, yes, this com- this compartmentalizing is a real necessary part of it, but there is a toolkit that somehow needs to be applied that goes beyond just your gut reaction to things. Because if we strictly went by our gut reaction to things, then when it came to moral judgments, we would often be very, very wrong. Um, And secondly, uh, just our species probably wouldn't have survived this long. So there's a, there's a, there's a second order of thinking involved here. 
I mean, that that's a much harder one because, uh, you know, it, it may be the case that the, the yeah, um, that, that, you know, evolution's a, a harsh, <laughs> it's a harsh way to go, go about choosing who's going to be the winner and the loser of things, right? It's not, yeah, yeah. it's not the cuddliest of, 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 <laughs> um, conflict resolvers or, or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, it, it's, it could be the case that, you know, we're all descendants from some group of, of humans, which was, you know, by our current moral lights, our current moral aspirations, um, weren't, weren't particularly you know, praiseworthy. Um, but it worked, right? But we're trying to do better now. That's the whole point. We're, we're trying to do better than maybe we were in the past. So even if human moral nature has a couple bugs still left in it, and bugs which weren't certainly weren't catastrophically detrimental, but um, maybe even um, were adaptive in the strict sense of the term in the past, um, again, that doesn't mean we should celebrate those or that we should give them some sort of weird authority that they don't deserve. Um, we should, we should uh, try and live up to our ideals. Dan, we're getting close to the top of the hour here, so I know you got to get going. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming today. Um, thank you for in, for all the insightful information. Um, do you have any Do you have any last thoughts you want to say? Is there anything? Um, I don't know when this is going to come out, so it's don't know if there's anything you want to plug. But um, yeah, do you have any current projects you're working on in terms of publications or anything you want to um, mention? No, I'm. Uh, I'm working on a book right now but it's still sort of in the process of being formed so um you know having back on in two years we'll see where it is then nice oh and one thing we should mention though and i'm sorry i forgot to mention this you were you had a very awesome opportunity last year if you just want to mention where you were if only briefly because i know you got to get going um but yes last year you were not on campus you were i was so i mentioned earlier all my research is super interdisciplinary and uh last year I i got a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. So I got to spend a year out there in what was basically academic Shangri-La with 30, 35 other academics from a range of different disciplines, just talking about big ideas and uh, arguing with each other and learning new and interesting things and being in California and surfing two or three times a week and Nice. And hanging, yeah, hanging out in a Bush League part of the country. Yeah, yeah, right. I saw Zuckerberg driving into work one morning. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> nice. It was quite a thing. Were you guys right there on the farm, as it were? Uh, right there in, we, like, in our place was on Stanford's on, campus. Uh, our place, uh, the the apartment we had was on the edge of Palo Alto, and then Zuckerberg like bought up an entire block in Palo Alto for privacy reasons ironically. Um, and then the center itself was on the, it was on the South edge of Stanford's campus, um, up on this hill where you could see over the entire thing. And on a clear day, you could see San Francisco and on a not so clear day, you could, you could, uh, take a long walk in the nature preserve that was right next door to it. Again, it was, it was like, it was basically paradise. That's awesome. That's awesome. So again, if you're interested, the title of the book is Yuck, The Nature and Moral Significance of Disgust by Dr. Dan Kelly. This is uh, the MIT Press 2012. Dan, again, thanks so much. Loved it. I mean, I feel like there was so much we didn't cover and I would love to have you on in the future if you're interested. Um, but thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the next time. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue. sat together in the park as the evening sky grew dark she looked at him and he felt a spark tingle through his bones twas then he felt alone boo and wished he'd gone straight this is terrible